Mark 11 verses 1 to 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Good morning, everybody. My name is Linton, and what a privilege it is for me to share God's word with you today. But before we get into it, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing privilege that we have to be in your presence, to sit under the ministry of your word. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and speak to us, to convict and challenge our hearts, to encourage us from your word this morning. And I pray that you would use me as a vessel for honor in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so like I said, it's a privilege for me to be sharing God's word with you this morning. And this morning we'll be looking at the prophetic mission of Jesus. And lessons we can learn from a donkey, a tree, and a mountain. So Christology has been traditionally divided into three key parts. The person of Christ, referring to his deity and humanity united in one person. The states of Christ, the humiliation and exaltation of the mediator. And then thirdly, the work of Christ. And the last topic has been frequently and conveniently dealt with under the title of the offices of Christ. The principle which underlies this terminology is simply that the work of Christ or the work that Christ accomplished is the perfect fulfillment of certain basic functions or offices in which the essential relationship of God and man is expressed. These offices often are classified as prophetic, priestly, and kingly. This morning, we will be looking at Mark chapter 11 and the prophetic mission of Jesus and how Jesus reveals himself as prophet, priest, and king. And how we are to imitate this example as a Christian community. Mark 11 is the turning point in the gospel account of Jesus. More than one-third of Mark's narrative takes place during a seven-day period, the Passover week, when Jesus is finally put to death. 
Mark's gospel has been called a passion story with a very long introduction. His emphasis on the passion week is appropriate because without this week, Jesus would not have fulfilled his purpose for coming to the earth. Let us therefore get into the text and hear what the Holy Spirit wants to reveal to us today as we consider the prophetic mission of Jesus as revealed through his prophecies. Offices. So firstly, when we look at uh, Mark chapter 11 from verse 1 to 11, we see that Jesus is revealed as king. Jesus is king. So the, the lesson that we're going to look at today is from a donkey. What lesson can we learn from this donkey? So when Jesus enters Jerusalem during Passover, it appears he is following a prophetic script to reveal who he is and what his intentions are. Mark notes how Jesus sent two of his disciples to collect the donkey cart from a friend. They bring the cart to Jesus, put clothes on the back of the donkey, and usher Jesus into Jerusalem riding on this donkey. Jesus enters the city with people waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna! But before the actual triumph or victory takes place, one would normally have this kind of procession when the victor comes riding in on his horse after winning a victorious battle. But in this case, Jesus was riding on a donkey, revealing something prophetic about who he is and what he has come to do foreshadowing a victory of a different kind. So for some historical context, about 150 years earlier, Judas Maccabee led the Jewish people in a revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes decreed that the Jews worship the Greek god Zeus rather than the god of Israel. The Syrian ruler had murdered thousands of Jews and desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, forcing the priests to eat its flesh. Maccabee and his passionate band of freedom fighters triumphed over the massive Seleucid army of Antiochus Epiphanes. This made Judas Maccabee a hero, and the crowd celebrated his victory by waving palm branches as he rode into the city on his horse. With Jesus' arrival at the start of the Holy Week, the crowd was hoping for something similar. And who could blame them? They were suffering unmercifully under the Romans. They too threw down their cloaks and waved palm branches, signifying the triumphal entry of the Messiah. Their hope for deliverance from oppression, their hope for Jesus to set them free from whatever selfish desires that they had in mind. In the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, it notes that donkeys, not horses, were ridden by rulers. King David rode on donkeys as they were a royal gift to the king. So for Jesus to come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey was an act of humility, but also a clear indication of royalty. In the Old Testament, there were key prophecies relating to this event. Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 11 says, Behold, your salvation comes. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 echoes that the king is coming humble and mounted on a donkey. 
Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25 indicates the exact day when Jesus would come riding into Jerusalem. It was clear that the prophecies made by the prophets were being fulfilled in front of their very eyes. In fact, if the scribes had been diligent enough, they would have noticed or recognized that it was on the final day of construction of the main street that Jesus was riding on, as well as when the wall was completed, that very day Jesus came riding in as a king on a donkey. Mark chapter 11, verse 9 and verse 10 continues. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people were literally shouting out to Jesus, Save now, O Lord. What the people were saying in actual fact was that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. But to provide a personal salvation or salvation for just them as a nation. According to the people, a Messiah who would deliver them from Roman oppression. The people were crying out for a political solution, thinking that if they got rid of the current political structure, it would solve their problems. Not realizing that justice is a heart matter and not just a political matter. They needed to learn to love the way God loves. Such as loving their Roman enemies who were ruling and oppressing them at the time. In an article by Kirk McGregor, he aptly notes, Since the Romans had made the Jewish people slaves in their own homeland and progressively enacted sanctions, robbing them of their religious liberties bit by bit, the Sanhedrin, or men of the great assembly, popularized an interpretation of the Hebrew Bible concept of Mashiach, or Messiah, along the lines of previous national deliverers. Like Moses, this Messiah would be a compelling religious leader. But even greater than Moses, he would successfully enforce Torah upon all who dwelt in Palestine. Like Cyrus, he would be king of an empire who conquered his enemies with a sword. But surpassing Cyrus... Surpassing Cyrus's governance of a pagan empire, the Messiah would, after violently ridding the Holy Land of all Roman and other pagan influences, turn Israel into the superpower of the ancient Near East, restore Israel's borders to at least their original expanse following Joshua's conquest of Canaan, if not militarily extending these boundaries and employ the new Israelite empire's political influence to spread Israelite justice and the, way, and the Jewish way of life throughout the Mediterranean world. Such a messianic job description stood in diametric opposition to the type of Messiah Jesus claimed to be. By embracing the Sanhedrin's violent messianic aspirations, Jesus proposed that the Jewish people found themselves in a far deeper slavery than simply to Rome. 
They had voluntarily become slaves to the kingdom of the world. The philosophical system of domination and oppression ruled by Satan according to which the world operates. Jesus was the long-awaited king of the Jews, the Messiah. But more than that, he was the savior king of the world who has come to establish his kingdom of righteousness and justice in the world. So by way of application, at the core of Jesus' kingship and his kingdom, his kingdom rule is a heart of agape love for the entire world, which included the Jewish nation, but also for the other, those, uh, those on the fringes of society and those whom they considered as their enemies, such as the Romans. Jesus came to establish a new kingdom that sought to preach the good news to the poor, to announce release, pardon, forgiveness to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, downtrodden, bruised, and crushed by tragedy. But what kind of Messiah are we looking for today? As king of kings, Jesus did come to solve our problems, yes, but not in the way that we want. He doesn't take our problems away, but provides a solution to our problems. And this comes through the power of the cross. God is faithful. He's faithful to us and his promises, and he promises to be with us in the midst of our problems. It is through the power of the cross that we are able to experience the love, grace, forgiveness, and justice of God in our world. As king, he wants to use us as his body, as his agents of love and grace to bring hope and healing to our broken society. So the lesson we learn here from this donkey that Jesus is king. Secondly, Jesus is prophet. The lesson of the fig tree. Now the next day, according to the scriptures, introduces the following day's events, thus referring to Monday. Let's look at Mark chapter 11 from verse 12 down to 18. Verse 12 indicates now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. In the Life Group Central, we are doing the Holy Spirit course. And the past week, we learned that Prophecy had to do with speaking the word of God in the power of the Spirit to a situation, either a warning, a call to repentance, or the threat of imminent danger, and also words of encouragement to the nation. God's gracious covenant with the nation of Israel led him to give Israel the law of Moses to guide social life. That law sets out principles of fairness, equity, and social justice which reflect Israel's understanding of herself as a people redeemed from slavery. 
The Torah embodied a vision of social righteousness when God acceded to Israel's demand for a king. The powers of the king were circumscribed and the king was accountable to God for upholding the covenant. The administration of justice was central to his role and was seen in covenantal terms. For a king to be righteous was to be just in his relations with his subjects. But the sad reality was that the kings were not often righteous in their dealings with their subjects. Bribery, oppression, and favoritism were more characteristic of their reigns than generosity, justice, and even-handedness. Into such a context, God sent his prophets. Sandra Richter explains that in the scriptures, the role of the prophet was to represent God. Be the spokesman or diplomat. The prophet was to speak the word to people who in one way or the other distanced themselves from God and were on the brink of self-destruction. Like the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, Jesus is the prophet, being God incarnate, speaking the oracles of God and to bring comfort to the people but also warning of what is yet to come. In the Old Testament, the prophets often used graphic illustrations to stimulate curiosity and to communicate lessons of truth. These symbolic acts were much like dramas or skits with a clear message of what was being portrayed. In Mark chapter 11, back to point number two. Sorry, we just had a bit of a technical problem. I know that we dropped as far as our streaming is concerned, but we'll jump back into it. I'll rewind a little bit and see where we land. <laughs> Let's get back to the part of uh, the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is the prophet being God incarnate, speaking the oracles of God and to bring comfort to the people, but also warning of what is yet to come. In the Old Testament, the prophets often used graphic illustrations to stimulate curiosity and to communicate lessons of truth. These symbolic acts were much like dramas or skits with a clear message of what was being portrayed. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus, there we go, cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple was a prophetic drama. He uses these dramatic acts to make a bold statement about the current spiritual condition of the nation and warning of what could ultimately take place if they chose not to repent. So the drama unfolds in the following manner. Jesus was hungry and he approaches a fig tree. Unfortunately, this fig tree with all of its green leaves was sterile. It bore no good fruit. A picture of the nation who appeared pretty but produced no good fruit to provide sustenance to those in need of it. Jesus curses the fig tree saying, let no one eat from you ever again. Secondly, the temple. The temple was a place where all people from all nations were to meet with God, making restitution and worship him. For the Jews, the temple was more than just a place of worship. The temple was the center of Judaism. 
The temple served as a religious institution, a financial institution, and a political institution for the nation. It served as a banking society and provided security for rich people's wealth and prized possessions that was placed in the temple treasury. More importantly, the temple served as the gateway to the supernatural presence of Yahweh. The temple had its own law system, hence the Sanhedrin, as well as its own police. The nation Israel, their lives revolved around the temple. The temple had become their symbol of hope and protection. They believed that as long as they had the temple, God would bless them and protect them. They placed their faith and hope in the temple mount more than the supernatural presence of Yahweh who once dwelt in the holy of holies of the temple. There was therefore a shift in their covenant relationship with God to mere faithless religious acts. In this prophetic act or skit, Jesus steps into the scene, overturns the tables of the money changers, and sternly teaches them of the original purpose of why the temple was originally established. Jesus says in verse 17, it is not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. In Jesus' dramatic lesson, he reveals the truth about the temple and its current state. Jesus refers to the temple as a den of thieves. By this bold statement, he revealed what was truly happening in the temple. The statement, den of thieves, referred to brigands or bandits in the sense of revolutionaries, much like Barabbas, who murdered a Roman soldier but was set free by Pilate at Jesus' trial. During the day, the money changers provided a key service by converting the varieties of local coinage into the required tribute of silver shekels that was accepted in the temple. They also sold the required animals used for sacrifices, such as the doves, who were for the very poor, but at premium prices, effectively enriching the priesthood by exploiting the poor. And at night, the temple was the meeting place for the zealots, terrorists, revolutionaries. It is here that they would meet to plan how to violently overthrow their Roman oppressors. Jesus contended that Israel had abandoned its original vocation to be the light of the world. They were supposed to be a blessing to all nations by reaching out with open arms for, to foreign nations and actively display God's love to them. The nation gloried in the temple, and even though it appeared beautiful, it produced no spiritual fruit, much like the sterile fig tree. Ben Wetherington explains that understanding the relationship between the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple is the key to understanding this passage. Jesus' actions are a prophetic sign that signals some big event yet to come. And in this case, the big event is the judgment on the temple, not the coming cleansing of the temple. But what is the connection between the action in the temple and the withering of the fig tree? So what is the fig tree a symbol of? 
like the vine and the olive tree, all of these things are symbols of God's people who are seen by Jesus as not bearing good fruit. They were behaving unjustly to the people whom they were called to love and serve. Both of these symbolic actions foreshadow the coming judgment on the temple and on God's people in AD 70. Jesus as prophet gave the nation Israel a serious warning in cursing the fig tree and cleansing the temple. This was a tangible object lesson of their current spiritual state and the consequences of their idolatrous lifestyles and unjust religious systems. History records that by AD 70, the Roman legions surrounded Jerusalem. They then breached the walls and systematically ransacked the city. The assault culminated in the burning and destruction of the temple that served as the center of Judaism. Thus, in Jesus' prophetic drama, he challenged the people concerning their spiritual condition and the consequences of their lifestyles. Jesus reminded them of the fact that there was to be no prohibitions for anyone to meet with God. God's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And this included the poor, the marginalized, the foreigners, all nations. However, the religious leaders of the day reacted negatively and sought to destroy Jesus, refusing to heed his prophetic warning. So by way of application, the truth is that Jesus is the great prophet, anointed by God, commissioned by him to bring comfort and warning to God's people. How we respond to his message determines the outcome upon our lives and our society. How will we respond to his prophetic word? Will we receive him and his comfort and warning about our current spiritual state and the deplorable state, spiritual state of our society? How can we make this church a house of prayer for all nations, accepting all people, locals and foreigners, rich and poor alike, treating everyone equally with love and compassion? Will we repent on behalf of ourselves and our nation and trust Holy Spirit to begin to bear spiritual fruit in and through our lives as a church and consequently make a positive impact upon the world we live in? Or will we land up like the temple and the fig tree? The fruit of the Spirit is an indicator of us working together in unity. In the beauty of our diverse cultural, gender, and economic backgrounds, and collectively becoming the image of Christ. Thus being the body of Christ that works together to be on mission with God. What object lessons, prophetic acts, and words are God revealing to you? that is challenging your heart and life about the condition of our society right now. Jesus is king. Jesus is prophet. Thirdly, Jesus is priest. 
The primary function of a priest was to assist people in accessing God so they can be union with him. The priest does this through being a mediator between God and people and through being a teacher of a way of life that improves upon the reconciliation established at the beginning of the relationship. So from Mark 11:20, it introduces the third day of the Holy Week. It is Tuesday, and Jesus highlights the lesson of the mountain and the importance of faith, prayer, and forgiveness. And we'll be focusing on verses 20 to 26 now. The mountain that Jesus specifically refers to in verse 23 of this passage is the Temple Mount. He must have been looking directly at the Temple Mount when he made this statement. Whoever says to this mountain, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. As mentioned, the Temple Mount was what the nation Israel had placed their faith and hope in as far as God's blessing and protection was concerned. However, what was taking place within the temple as part of the religious system was corrupt and hypocritical to say the least. Continuing with his prophetic mission, Jesus as the true high priest teaches the disciples about their response to the spiritually barren condition of the nation, the unjust religious system and evil methods of the world that had been adopted. Jesus then pronounces judgment against these unjust religious institutions or systems by cursing the fig tree or cleansing the temple and then looking at the temple mount and saying that it should be cast into the sea. Verse 22 to 23 says, So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. This is not a formula to wish for whatever you want, and then through the power of positive thinking, believe that you will receive whatever you desire. This is our high priest teaching and instructing his disciples to be acutely aware of the evil systems in this world, the injustice that takes place on a daily basis, and the church's mandate to do something about it. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 rightly affirms, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Then as an act of faith and righteous authority to pray against those evil, corrupt, and unjust systems. Pronounce judgment against it and believe that God by His grace and power will bring about justice and righteousness as He establishes His kingdom using us as His agents of grace. Jesus concludes by noticing or noting the power of sincere love and forgiveness. He states that 
When the disciples pray and pronounce righteous judgment, it is upon the evil systems and not the people involved. In this act of faith and prayer, the disciples are to recognize where they have been hurt and offended. Then denounce the worldly institutions. Forgive those like the religious leaders of the day who acted corruptly and mere instruments of evil world systems, then seeking forgiveness for the bitterness they have harbored as a result of the injustice they experienced. As we reflect on what the Word of God has revealed to us today, we can learn the following truths. As a Christian community, we play a fundamental role in society, in being prophetic and priestly. Just as the temple was meant to dispense grace through the sacrificial system, so we, as the temple of the living God, are to dispense grace unto others. We should heed the warning of not being a sterile or being sterile like the fig tree and the temple who appear beautiful and leafy but bear no spiritual fruit. The church of God is meant to embody the love and justice of God and therefore warn, mediate, and stand in the gap for those who experience injustice on a daily basis. Like people on the poverty line, women experiencing gender-based violence, young boys and girls being trafficked, foreign nationals being unfairly treated, or marginalizing people with physical disabilities, emotionally and psychological disorders. There's a danger of misplacing our trust in institutions like the temple and not in the living God. Our faith should be in God. We need to realize that we are the temple. We host the presence of God in our lives and therefore serve as vessels and agents of His grace. We need to be careful of being lost in mere religious activities and programs, what one can refer to as churchianity. As our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus calls us to be, to be a righteous and just community that will bring economic, racial, and gender justice in our polarized world. And as we land, I would... I would like to share the story of, of William and Catherine Booth and how they started the Salvation Army. This was taken from the lesson we got in Lectio 365 on Friday. It reads, William Booth grew up in Nottingham, England in the mid-19th century. And he found faith early and was an, an active Methodist, drawn to street preaching as a teenager, he apprenticed in a pawnbroker shop and was disturbed by the poverty he witnessed. Catherine Mumford was raised as a dedicated Christian with a commitment to personal holiness. An avid reader and thinker, and Catherine was immediately impressed by the young preacher William Booth. Married in 1855, Catherine and William was a force to be reckoned with. Together they dedicated their lives to bringing the transforming power of the gospel to the people who needed it most. 
1965, outside the blind beggar pub in London, William Booth began preaching to crowds of people. This work would lead to many being saved and to the founding of the Christian mission, later renamed the Salvation Army. As William and Catherine shared the message of Jesus in a way ordinary people could understand and relate to, their work grew. Despite criticism and opposition from people who disagreed with their methods, the Booths welcomed everyone, especially people who felt rejected or unwelcome in more traditional churches. Catherine Booth once said, To better the future, we must disturb the present. In the early years of the Salvation Army, William, Catherine, and others caused many disturbances. In a time when women were often not permitted to teach, Catherine disturbed the social and theological norms by preaching and seeing people saved alongside her husband. Catherine and William disturbed the business world when they campaigned for safer working conditions for suffering workers in match matchstick factories. They even provided better employment by launching their own brand of matches, Lights in Darkest England. The booths disturbed the hidden sex industry of their day. They worked with a journalist to expose how easy it was to traffic vulnerable young women and protested in Parliament demanding change. William and Catherine Booth noticed injustice, pain and struggle in the lives of the people around them and they did something about it. As we reflect on Jesus being our king, our prophet, and our priest, how are we to follow his example in the role that he has called us to serve? To better the future, we must disturb the present. What does this mean for us today as agents of God's grace, love, and justice? What needs to be disturbed in our very lives in our church to set God's direction for our future. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our priest. And we are to imitate him as agents of love and grace. Let's pray together. Thank you for your word, Father. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would continue to work in and through us, convict challenge and comfort us and use us for your glory to be on mission with you O god thank you for your word lord we bless you in jesus name amen